Thanks, Russ. Good morning. So go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're halfway through Colossians at this point. My assignment this morning is chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. And so we're at a transition point in Colossians now. We're halfway through the book. And Paul is going to shift his emphasis from primarily doctrinal teaching now to application. How are we going to apply what he's been teaching us to our Christian life? And this is a pattern that he uses in most of his letters. Uh, first part of the letter, the initial part of the letter, is uh, doctrinal foundation, just principles and precepts for our Christian faith. And at some point in the letter, that emphasis shifts. And you'll see it here in chapter 3. We see a very clear transition from doctrine to application. The doctrine that he's been laying down is the supremacy of Christ. It's the main theme of Colossians. We might say the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. We'll take just a minute to review Colossians 1, 17 and 18, Paul said, And he, Christ, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. The NIV says that in everything he might have the supremacy. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he writes, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. He establishes the deity of Christ. A few verses down in Colossians 2:16 and 17, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ. Not Christ plus the law, not Christ plus human tradition, not Christ plus human regulations or human philosophy, what Paul calls self-made religion in chapter 2, verse 23. There's always a human philosophy, some trending academic school of thought, some secret revelation or vision ready to compete with Christ and his word for supremacy in our mind and heart. In Colossians, Paul cuts through all of that with an emphatic statement of Christ's deity. He is God. He is supreme in everything. And so now Paul would turn our attention to what that doctrine is going to look like in my life. How am I going to apply that? And how is that going to appear in me? How is that going to appear in us? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17. Follow as I read. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 
On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. Forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. I think the main idea of our passage today is the title of our message, The Mind and the Character of a Christian. This is the mind and the character of a Christian. The passage easily outlines into three main parts for us. Number one, the orientation of the Christian mind, verses 1 through 4. The orientation of the Christian mind. Number two, putting off the old character. Putting off the old character, verses 5 through 11. And number three, putting on the new character. Verses 12 through 17, putting on the new character. So let's take a few minutes to look at what Paul has to say about the orientation of the Christian mind, verses 1 and 2. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, he's making reference to chapter 2, verse 12, his gospel presentation in chapter 2. If you have been raised with Christ, if you are a Christian, if you are born again, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. It's important to know here that Paul's instruction about our mind precedes his instruction about our character. That's intentional. Before we can really apply ourselves to developing and maintaining our character, we're going to have to rightly address the orientation of our mind. The emphasis here is really about where our focus is to be, where our attention is to be, what our perspective should be, in thinking as believers. It would be difficult to to overstate rather the significance of the doctrine of the Christian mind. It is of monumental significance in the Christian life and in the life of the church. The significance of how we think. The significance of what we think. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, 
holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Transformation always begins with my mind. In Matthew 22, Jesus is involved in a conversation with Jerusalem's religious leaders. In Matthew 22:35, we read, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Christ himself establishes in the greatest commandment our responsibility to love God with our minds at least to the same degree that we love him with our heart and with our soul. But we can tend to forget the significance of our mind. And as a result, often, anyway, we can be prone to neglect it. Anglican theologian Harry Blaymeyers provides a sobering perspective on this in his book, The Christian Mind. He wrote this in 1963. He says this, There is no longer a Christian mind. There is still, of course, a Christian ethic, a Christian practice, and a Christian spirituality. As a moral being, the modern Christian subscribes to a code other than that of the non-Christian. As a member of the church, he undertakes obligations and observations ignored by the non-Christian. As a spiritual being in prayer and meditation, he strives to cultivate a dimension of life unexplored by the non-Christian. Listen to this. But as a thinking being, the modern Christian has succumbed to secularization. He accepts religion, its morality, its worship, its spiritual culture, but he rejects the religious view of life, the view which sets all earthly issues within the context of the eternal, the view which relates all human problems, social, political, cultural, to the doctrinal foundations of the Christian faith, the view which sees all things here below in terms of God's supremacy. In other words, what have we been prone to as Christians? What Dr. Blamires refers to as secularization, we're prone to thinking what the world thinks. We're prone to thinking how the world thinks. To have our minds become entangled in earthly things, And in so doing, we experience the inevitable outcome. We begin to take on the world's perspective. Paul's warning us here. Don't allow that to happen. Don't let your mind become entangled in things that are on the earth. In other words, don't allow it to become obsessed with, preoccupied with, infatuated with, enamored with, or captivated by earthly things. Young man comes to Jesus, asks him, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, Obey the commandments. He says, I've done that. What else? In Mark 10, 21, 22, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, Go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. 
He went away sad because he had great wealth. He lacked one thing. In fact, the one thing he lacked was the only thing that he needed. He lacked a mind set on Christ. His mind was entangled in earthly things. And what did it cost him? He didn't like it, but he was willing to walk away from Christ, to walk away from eternal life. That's how strong the entanglement and attraction of earthly things is to my mind. It is an impossible challenge to have a mind set on earthly things and hope to prevail in the Christian life. Romans 8, 5 through 8 teaches us this. Paul says, For those those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind set on the flesh, set on earthly things, is trapped. It can't submit to God's law. It cannot obey God. It can't please God. Can we begin to see why Paul begins his instruction on Christian character with instruction on the orientation of our minds? The Christian mind is to be a kingdom-oriented mind where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. It is a mind that finds its place where it finds its life in Christ. I'll say that again. It's a mind that finds its place. It is set where it finds its life in Christ. God's tent is not for us to put our hope in Christ and to have our minds set here. In 1 Corinthians 15, 19, Paul writes, If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. He says that in the context of a teaching about the necessity of the resurrection in the gospel. But the point is just as relevant to our topic here today. Hope in Christ is necessarily a heavenly hope. It's a kingdom hope that results from our salvation. 1 Thessalonians 5.8, this is the less well-known passage on the armor of God. Ephesians 6 is the one that we're probably most familiar with. But 1 Thessalonians 5.8 says this, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Where does our helmet go? What's it guarding? Football helmet, batting helmet, soldier's helmet. They're protecting our brain. This is a spiritual metaphor. God's not so interested here in protecting my brain, but what's he interested in guarding with the hope of salvation? My mind. This is what the hope of salvation does for us. It's guarding my mind. Look at verses 3 and 4. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The hope of salvation keeps my attention and my perspective heavenward, not here on the earth. My real life, the one I hope for because of my salvation, my glorified life is not here on the earth, is it? 
No, it's hidden in Christ. It's seated at God's right hand in heaven. It's where my mind is to be oriented. I think there are two things that we can do. There are more, but I think these are two important things that we can do to help orient our mind heavenward. Number one, the Christian mind should attend to Scripture. It should attend to Scripture. In Luke 24, Christ is with the disciples. This is after the resurrection. This is just before he ascends back into heaven. And these are some of his last words with the disciples before he leaves them. Luke 24, 45. Then he opened their minds. This is Christ opening the minds of the apostles. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. This was a miraculous act. This is a supernatural act of Christ for the apostles. Literally in the moment preceding it, they had their previous sort of shallow, partial understanding of Scripture. And the next moment after Christ opens their minds, they have a supernatural, miraculous, deep, complete understanding of the Scriptures. I think this was probably an act unique to them. But I think the principle applies to us. I think daily we should ask God to open our minds too so that we might understand and apply the scripture to our life. Number two, the Christian mind meditates. I think these two go hand in glove. The Christian mind meditates. Psalm 1, 1 through 3, David says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. He is a tree planted, think set. He is a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Psalm 119.97, David again. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I don't think this is really metaphorical language. I think this is literal language. I think that continually during our day, at night, if I wake up from my sleep, my inclination as a Christian should be for, be, for my mind to be set on the kingdom, for my mind to be set on Scripture. I think God guards my mind. I think God nourishes my mind and my heart in this way. It's protective of me. It's pleasing to him. So Paul establishes the necessity of rightly orienting our mind to Christ so that we can now move on and talk about Christian character, Christian conduct. Point number two, putting off the old character. Verse five. Paul says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. 
putting off the old, the picture here literally is of putting off a garment, taking off a piece of clothing. This is the idea of sanctification. It's the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. It begins at my salvation and it continues for the rest of my life. It's a process. But the Holy Spirit begins working on my heart and on my mind from the moment that I am saved and with the sole purpose of making me like Christ. Paul gives us two lists here. Specific behaviors, specific attitudes that we're to rid ourselves of. We're to put them off. Paul says we're to put them to death. This is what we call the mortification of sin. Mortification of sin, literally killing sin. This idea is central to the gospel. Without this idea, the gospel is incomplete. Scripture has much to say to us about this. In Galatians 5.24, Paul writes, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Romans 8.13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. How do we put to death the misdeeds of the body? Romans 8 says we mortify sin by the help of the Holy Spirit. There are 11 things Paul instructs us to mortify here. It's a self-explanatory list. Sexual immorality. Does Paul put this on the list first because it's the worst sin? I don't know. I think not, but I don't know. But I don't think it matters either. What matters is it's on the list. So what is sexual immorality? I think it would be easier to define what God considers sexual morality. In his holiness, in his kindness, in his wisdom, he's given us a simple definition. It's very old. We find it in the Garden of Eden at the end of Genesis chapter 2. And it is a man and a woman within the context of marriage. That's God's design for sexuality. It's never changed. Scripture's never redefined it. And anything that is not that, God considers sexually immoral. That's an unpopular idea in our culture. In many churches, it's increasingly treated with skepticism if it's not just ignored completely. But it's what Scripture teaches, so we know it's true. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 10 says this, They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. In his love for us, Christ would spare us that. So he calls on us to mortify not just the sin of sexual immorality, but all sin. Impurity. We can talk about that, I guess, for a while. I think it's kind of a catch-all. Anything that's not included someplace else in the list, we could include there. Passion. This idea of a lustful drive or a lustful 
emotional motivation, evil desire, self-explanatory. Covetousness, which Paul calls idolatry. We think of this as wanting the other man's stuff. I read a commentary that I thought gave a little broader definition. I liked it. The idea being coveting an insatiable desire for more, a desire that's not satisfiable. It's never quenched. Ongoing desire. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Anger. Is anger always a sin? No. But anger cannot characterize the Christian character. Even righteous anger cannot characterize our character, our personality, our conduct as a Christian. We need to guard against that. Wrath, next level anger, extreme anger, the kind of anger that would make me act out in anger. And then Paul closes out this list with three things that are related to our speech. Slander, obscene talk, and lying. Two of the three uh, regard truth. What we say matters. How we say it matters. We need to attend to our speech. Scripture talks to us about our speech. Matthew 23:36 Christ said, "But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment." James 1:26 If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives but I'm sorry, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. We can do everything else right. And if we are not careful with our tongue, we can undo it in a moment. Ephesians 4.29 tells us how we should speak. This is a great scripture. Paul says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Christian speech should be encouraging speech. It should be uplifting speech. It should be life-giving speech. It benefits people to hear speech like that. Verse 11 is a comment on Christian identity. It's an important verse, although I think sometimes we read over it. But it deserves a moment. Paul says, here there is not... Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian. The Scythians, by the way, I had to look it up because I didn't know. They were a nomadic, barbarian people in the southern part of Russia, around the Black Sea. They were just sort of known as the barbarians' barbarian. They were a violent people. Paul's saying, even if you're this bad, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. As a society today, we're witnessing firsthand the effects of misplaced identity. Enormous confusion related to this. As Christians, our identity is in Christ. There are a long list of things that compete in my mind for Christ 
for identity. But scripture is clear. My identity cannot be based in my nationality, my political party, my alma mater or my career. It can't be based in my social class, my ethnicity, my gender, my sexuality. It can't even be based in my family or my church denomination. My identity is in Christ. Christ is all and in all. Putting off the old. The order again of Paul's instruction here is important. Very difficult for me to be, be, to be putting on something new if I haven't taken off what's old first. We understand that this process is ongoing our whole life. I will never completely shed the old in exchange for the new, not in, <clears throat> not in this life. But increasingly, the old should go and the new should come. The process of sanctification in me, the work of the Holy Spirit. Point number three, putting on the new, verse 12. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whose character does Paul present to us here? Christ's. This is Christ's character, and it's to be my character. Compassionate hearts. This conveys the idea of sympathy, and even more important, empathy, especially for others in their trial and in their suffering. Romans 12.15, I think, is helpful to us here. It says this, Romans 12.15, Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. I think it's helpful to us to know how to be encouraging, how to be compassionate. I think often, especially if somebody's in a time of trial, time of tragedy, time of mourning, we rightly want to come alongside them and encourage them. But sometimes we come with the attitude that we want to pep them up. We want to give them a word of victory, maybe. And while it's well intended, sometimes that type of word in that moment can be discouraging. It doesn't land well, and it's not what they need. People who mourn need someone to mourn with them. It's encouraging. It seems counterintuitive in one way, but it's not. There's something about burden-bearing here, helping us bear each other's burdens. I don't have a slide, but Galatians 6.2, it's a good verse. Bear one another's burdens, and in so doing, 
fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens and in so doing fulfill the law of Christ. There's something encouraging in the body of Christ when we bear each other's burdens. Kindness, just be nice, be polite. Humility, this idea of a modest or low view of my own importance. Freedom from arrogance or pride, it's a very attractive quality. Everybody appreciates that. People in the church notice it and people in the world notice it. It's an encouraging attitude. Meekness, same thing. But the idea of this gentle, quiet character, this is an attractive trait to God. Matthew 5, 5, Jesus says they'll inherit the earth. Patience. Bearing with one another. This carries with it the idea not of a grudging patience, not a grudging bearing with, but a kind, compassionate bearing with. I'll bear with you with understanding and patience. How many problems in the church would be solved? if we would bear with one another. Forgiveness. This deserves a moment. That's why I brought Kleenex. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. There are a few commands in Scripture that I think are daunting. They're all daunting, but a few especially I think are daunting. One of them for me would be Ephesians 5. God tells husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. I think that's daunting. I think that's impossible. And it is. I I cannot do that apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit. And in Colossians 3, Paul gives us a similar command. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. All of us have been in need of forgiveness. That's salvation. But even beyond that, just in life, we're going to need forgiveness. All of us are going to be in a position sometime to need to forgive. And what is one of the most common reasons people would give for not forgiving? Bearing in mind, some people have suffered Horrible things. And yet we're called to forgive. And so one of the most common reasons they would give is they don't deserve forgiveness. They don't deserve forgiveness. And what would Christ's patient reminder to us be? We didn't either. We didn't either. We forgive as Christ forgave us. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. 
It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. It's one of the great promises of Scripture. Verse 15, he says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is a peace that does not depend on my circumstance. Just like putting on and putting off character doesn't depend on my personality. John 14, 27, John write, or Christ says, rather, again to the disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. This is the peace of Christ that's given to us. He says be thankful. Thankfulness is mentioned in each of the last three verses in this passage. Gratitude always is characteristic of a Christian. Verse 16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. He's referring to scripture. And then he says, teach and admonish one another. Teach and admonish one another. Our teaching in the church doesn't just come from the pulpit on Sunday morning. It doesn't just come from our small group leader once a week. It ought to come among us, from us, toward each other, continually. And it's not an accident that in this passage of scripture where he tells us about letting the word dwell in us richly, that he also gives instruction on teaching and admonishing. It's important that we do those things with Scripture. We're all going to need to be taught. We're all going to need to be admonished and corrected. That's what admonishment is. It's important that if we deliver admonishment, that we always do it with Scripture. Always. We don't want to come to somebody to give a word of correction, maybe a word of encouragement if we see that they've stumbled, and just tell them without Scripture what we think. We may be right, but without Scripture I run the risk of just conveying the idea that you're offending my sensibility, that the sin you've committed really is against me. I don't like the way you're acting. Bringing Scripture to bear in a moment of admonishment and teaching protects us against that. It protects me if I'm the one giving the instruction because it makes sure that I've actually got something to complain about. If I can't find it in Scripture, then I may need to reevaluate my thinking. I may need to reconsider. Do I have something to hold against this person? If I'm the one receiving admonishment, I don't want to, I don't want to feel that I'm just offending someone's sensibility And also, Scripture just carries authority with it. Scripture carries its own weight, you might hear people say. I can bring teaching, I can bring correction, not in my authority, but within the authority of God's Word. There's something completely different about that. There's anointing with that. The goal is to bear fruit in someone's life. Scripture does that. Finally, he says, do everything Whatever you say, whatever you do, in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so Paul closes out this section of Scripture 
the way he began this section of Scripture. Mind set on Christ, the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ. Whatever we do, I should do with Christ in mind. That's where my identity is. That's where my life is. That's where my mind is set. That's where my life is, hidden in Christ at the right hand of God in heaven. We'll close with a verse from 1 John. 1 John 4:17, and the apostle writes, By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. This is what sanctification is supposed to accomplish in me. It's supposed to make me like Christ. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for your word this morning. Lord, as a church, we're grateful for your word this morning and for your instruction to us. Lord, by your grace, help us to have minds that are set in heaven, not on earthly things. Lord, by your grace, help us to put off our old character and to mortify sin. And Lord, to put on in its place the character of Christ. Father, our willpower alone will not accomplish that. But Lord, by your Holy Spirit, we can do all things. Father, for your glory and for the glory of your kingdom. And Lord, as a witness to the world as we present the gospel to them, let our lives be an act of worship. Father, we are grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.